My name is Callum Coomber, and I'm here with Mark Reed Balatovich. Together, Mark and I form the duo Besingende Gedaland, and we're currently in the process of writing an album. In this series, Wordlender, we speak to a guest artist every week who has some connection to the landscape in their day-to-day practice. Today, we'll be chatting with Dr. Ross Piper, a zoologist, author, presenter, and on-screen expert. He has been fascinated by animals for as long as he can remember, an interest that led to a first-class degree in zoology at Bangor University and a PhD in insect ecology at the University of Leeds. Currently a visiting fellow at the University of Essex and a fellow of the Royal Etymological Society. Ross's future projects include a new book exploring insects as a source of novel pharmaceuticals and biomaterials, as well as devising new techniques for sampling terrestrial arthropods and planning further expeditions. Cool. Uh, So, yeah. Hi, Ross. Hi, Mark. Hi, Cal. My first question is, uh, why do we know so little about the Earth's biodiversity? Um, well, I think there's, lot, there's lots of reasons for that. I think mainly is that um, we, we tend to forget how big the Earth is, and there's an awful lot of areas that haven't been properly explored because when people talk about exploration, what they're normally talking about is, you know, either getting to the top of a mountain or, you know, uh, traipsing through a forest. Often exploration isn't about looking at what things to be found in those places. Um and, you know, we, yeah, we, we have to try and get it's, it's so easy now to travel from one side of the planet to the other that, you know, we, we tend to forget how, how big the planet is. And there's loads of places that are more or less unexplored. And I think some people have difficulty sort of getting to grips with that because, you know, we're living in the 21st century, surrounded by lots of, you know, all this like crazy technology. But we're living in a, in a, on a planet with, that we know so little about, you know, we know lots about we know lots about, you know, mammals and birds and so reptiles and amphibians, but then all the all the other animals that make up the, the vast majority of animal diversity. Um, you know, we know next to nothing about, about them, not only what species are out there, but also how all those different species live. And it would take it would take a, an army of scientists, I think, thousands of years to, to answer all those questions, not only to figure out how many species there actually are, but then to try and figure out how all those species live in, how are they all interacting with one another. Um, it's it's a bit like um, it's a bit like sort of pondering the, the cosmos. I mean, there's just so much when you think of all the possible interactions that are taking place in the natural world all around us at any given time. It's a bit like um, trying to sort of comprehend infinity because it's just so complex. Um, and I don't think our brains really geared up to to, to deal with it. To be honest, um, you know we're we're aware of like the, the bigger stuff that we see around us, whether it's like other mammals or other vertebrates and things. But then, you know, they account for just a tiny sliver of animal diversity. And then you've got all these other things. So these other things, these other things that you you mentioned, like the arthropods, does that mean like if we have a smaller look at the kind of smaller animals, does that mean we can find more like new species uh, without going so far afield? Yeah, I mean that, that. Yeah, that's the thing because um, there's, there's there's two there's two there's two main problems. There's a huge amount of things out there, you know, a huge variety of things to discover, but then also trying to pin down exactly what a species is because that is never that is never really very clear. This, a species is a, is um, an abstraction that enables us to make sense of the diversity of 
of planet Earth uh, because we've got a brain that works by sort of pigeonholing things. But nature doesn't really work that way. Nature is nature's more fuzzy. Um, and so I think the best way you can sort of visualize it is when you see a river in the in the um, as as it goes towards the sea, as it gets towards its floodplain. You imagine all those little like little the rivulets and channels that you know join and split and keep joining. I think that's probably the best visualization of of a species. Um, so it's it's not something that's fixed in time. You know, it's not these little neat little things. It's something that's forever. Like you know, sort of you have lineages and species that are joining, diverging over time. Um, and because our because our lifetime is so short, you know. If you know, if you're lucky, you might live to 80 or 90, but that's an incredibly short amount of time. So it's quite difficult to get your head around things that are taking place over, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, millions of years. Yeah. Um, so, so there's that aspect of it. Um, and then also, most of these things that are so easily overlooked, you know, if they're small, you know, if most animals, um, if we're thinking about the totality of totality of animal diversity, you know, most animals are less than one centimeter long. Uh, and a huge proportion are much less than one millimeter. So all the things that we're most familiar with, all the all the vertebrates, you know, they're relatively gigantic things compared to the vast majority of animals. And so in amongst all these tiny things, trying to figure out exactly what is what and how uh, and what constitutes a species uh, is really difficult. Um, you know, you, you can look at some of these, like some some of the tiny parasitoid wasps and. If you're just looking at, if you're just basing your um, your taxonomy on the way something looks, so the morphology, you might say, oh, that's you know that's that species and that's another species. But then if you're able to look at the morphology, so the way it looks, and also how it lives, so the ecology, and then if you can also sequence some of its DNA, if you can if you can look at all of those things, then often what you find is that what you assume to be one species is actually a complex of you know 10, 20, 30 species all of which look the same, but are doing different things in their, in the places where they live. Because if you're, if you're something very small, the way you can divide uh, any given habitat is huge. You know, you think of all the niches that exist on a, on a, on a, on a plant, you know, on a tree, for example. Um, you know, there's tons, of, there's tons of ways for small animals to live. And so you can have things that look very, very similar, but they might be doing subtly different things. And so they become separated that way over time. Uh, so continuing the theme of uh, biodiversity, um, I've come to see maintaining biodiversity as integral to the ability of species to cope with changing environmental conditions rather than an ideal for every ecosystem, um, considering biodiversity changes depending kind of like on the topography and on the, on the soil, etc. Um, so I was, I was wondering what your view on biodiversity within the climate crisis is. Uh, I mean... That's a tough one because I think from based, based on how I feel about things, I mean, and you know, the fact that I love going out looking for stuff and finding things and knowing that there's all these things all around us, you know, I, fi I, I find it really sad to think that, you know, in, in destroying habitats and changing, the, and changing the climate, we're having a huge negative impact on, on biodiversity. But then I think if you take... If you take a really long view of things, then our impact, I think, is really negligible. You know, if you fast forward, 
for say fast forward a million years, 10 million years, 50 million years, you know, there'll be there'll be nothing left. There'll be no there'll be no record at all of humans anywhere. Um, and so I think um and and life changes and adapts so fast. Yeah. Like if you think of you know what happened at the end of the Cretaceous when the most of the dinosaurs became extinct. You know, within a few million years, which isn't, you know, isn't a long period of time, geologically speaking, the mammals had, had evolved from, you know, these tiny, tiny little beasts, you know, no, no bigger than today's like small rodents. to most of the animals, that we, most of the bigger mammals that we see today in a short amount of time. So that was in, within, what, say 20 million years. And so the only limiting factor, I think, for the continued like, biodiversity um, or the continued diversity of life on Earth is is the lifespan of the sun, you know? I think, I don't think, I don't think there's any way that we can rein in what we're doing now. I think we've gone too far down, too far down the road um, because it's, it's a bit of an intractable problem, you know, because you can't say to people, well, uh, to try and save, save life on earth, it means that you and all of your, you know, all of your kin, We'll have to have less and have to make do with less stuff, yeah? Less of everything, you know? I don't know how people will ever stomach that unless they're forced to because of like some some climate catastrophes, which are, I think are, are in the post. But then I think, you know, long-term, I think, you know, the, there'll always there'll be, there'll be life on Earth, complex life on Earth until, until the sun expands and, you know, um, destroys the earth completely so I think in some ways that's a lot to be positive about. is that in about five billion years is it or yeah something around that time so I mean even if you even if you think there's like you know you can have a, a complete cycle of you know going from like very small insignificant animal animals to animals that dominate their ecosystems you know in in, in terms of mammals that happen really quickly so you can think of how many cycles of that you could have again. But is, is, do you think if, if life got wiped out now, could it actually restart? Or is, it, is, it, is there not something like... It's no, life, would not, life on Earth would never get wiped out apart from when the sun expands and destroys it completely. There's no way, there's, no, there's nothing that humans could do that could wipe out life. All, the, all that humans are able to do is to make the planet um, less conducive to our own survival. And the survival of other big complex organisms. Um, we could never wipe out life. You know, you think of all the things that life has faced in the past three billion years, you know? Stuff that's like, you know, completely off the scale compared to anything we could do. Um, so there's there's no way that could ever happen. Once life has evolved, it's really, really robust uh, in one way or another. Um, so I mean that's that's um, that's my my view on it, and that's how I sort of like console myself that it doesn't really matter what we do too much in the in the in the fullness of time, because I think people also have difficulty with the fact that nature is all about change too. Nature's dynamic. Nature's all about um, things adapting to their environment. Um, so it's it's not it's not stood still. It's 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 never staying still. It's just that we've got this idea of it being still because we live for such a short amount of time. Um, but nature's always moving along uh, and always adapting. So I think that's the way I sort of console myself. If you think you know, if you can do a bit of a um, a thought experiment of like thinking what the Earth might be like in you know ten, 
50, 100 billion years, 100 million years, you know, um, there's some incredible possibilities there. So from from extinction, I'd like to ask you a few questions about symbiosis um, on the other end of the spectrum. Um, you previously talked about the wasp of the genus Trigonalis. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, and it's a parasitic um, and it's parasitic symbiosis with specific caterpillars. Would you mind talking a bit about the wasp and how symbiosis fits into our general perception of evolution, um, solely consisting of survival of the fittest? Yeah, I think um, so with, you know, and again, this you know sort of comes back to what I was saying earlier, that the interactions in nature are so complicated and there's, you know, multi-layered lot of complexity to everything that goes on in the natural world. You know, and a lot of these parasitoids have really fascinating lives where, you know, the, the, for them to complete their life cycle depends on their interactions with one, two, sometimes three different hosts. Um, in the example of these trigonalid wasps, um, which are quite rare because of the, the very way in which they live, um, they have to lay their eggs. Normally the, females, the female wasp will lay her eggs are on the margins of leaves in the hope that they're eaten by either a caterpillar or a sawfly larva. Um, and then if the eggs are eaten uh, and then ingested, they hatch inside the inside the body of the host, well, the caterpillar. And they tunnel out of its gut into its body cavity. Um, but the caterpillar isn't the host. The host are other parasitoids that have already infected the particular caterpillar or sawfly larva. Um, so for the, yes, for one of these things to complete its life cycle, not only must its eggs be eaten by the right sort of caterpillar or sawfly, but that how that caterpillar must already be infected by the right sort of parasitoid. Um, and that's just one example that's been well studied. You know, there are so many other um, interactions out there in nature, especially in the world of insects and other arthropods. And again, most of these things haven't been, haven't been well studied. Not much is known about them, really. Um, it, you know, it can take to figure out some of these things. It can take, you know, years years of study sometimes whole careers to try and figure out you know just one of these this, this just this one set of interactions because it's just so difficult you know trying to find the wasp the lay the eggs trying to find the right hosts trying to like see the development of that particular parasitoid in its host um you know you can imagine how difficult that is and that requires a lot of dedication and a lot of uh, observation um so i mean and yeah i think i think there's there's often a bit of a we, we see those things, sometimes people see those things as a bit disgusting because of how they live, you know, because we, we anthropomorphize, you know, because we, we try and put our own sort of values onto the, onto the lives of these things, but that's completely the wrong thing to do. You know, I think we have to sort of, we have to find fascination and take pleasure in these things for what they teach us about just the diversity of life and how, how amazing it is that all these things have adapted to live in these particular, these very specific ways, you know, where the odds are stacked against them, you know, so these female trigonalid wasps will have to lay, you know, maybe 10,000 eggs in the hope that, you know, just one of those eggs will be able to reach adulthood, you know, because the odds are stacked against uh, any one of those eggs doing that. Um, and I think, you know, we have to sort of, for me, I, you know, I, I, I take, you know, great pleasure in like, you know, finding out about these things and, you know, finding these things in the wild and, and seeing them do that, seeing them do their things. Um, there's just, the, for me, there's just an enormous amount of fascination there because you can never, I, I think as a, 
as an entomologist or, uh, or a zoologist, you can you can never really get bored because there's just so much. There's so much still to discover. And every time you go out, even in the UK, where we've got a relatively impoverished fauna of uh, of insects and other animals, you can st- any time you go out, you can I can guarantee you'll you'll find something you haven't seen before, um, which is exciting, you know. And then you go and then you go to other places, like the tropics, and like everything you see is you know new and amazing. It's like oh my god, it's like being it's like being in a sweet shop. <laughs> <laughs> so with that in mind, do you think that? Our view of parasites could be potentially damaging to conservation. Yeah, I think so because I think you know parasites and parasitoids are a, are a crucial part of of all ecosystems. You know, you think of all the like. There's a, a whole bunch of like weird crustacean parasites in the sea that live in really amazing ways. It actually, for me, probably even more fascinating than some of the insect parasites and parasitoids because of the way in which they live. Um, I won't go too much into those now but there's somewhere they um you have a, a larval stage that looks like um the larvae of any other crustacean these ones are related to barnacles but the, this larvae injects it, it, its body functions like a, a miniature hypodermic syringe and it injects a clump of cells into the host which in this case is a crab and this clump of cells grows through the, the body of the crab into something that looks like a, almost like a fungus, but it's a crustacean. It's the adult, it's the adult parasite inside the body of the host. Um, and it take it takes over the, the body of the host. So the, the the adult crab that's infected with this thing will will nurture the eggs of the parasite and protect them and make sure they've got enough oxygen. And all of this is orchestrated and controlled by by the parasite. Um, and you think how you know you th- you think how some of these things evolved, you know, it's incredible to think, you know, how that evolved from, you know, a free living ancestor, you know, an animal that was maybe feeding the plankton or something, and then over time adapted to feed within, you know, the, the body of another animal. Uh, and so all the steps that enabled that, you know, it's incredible to think about those things. So does it control its, does it control its behavior kind of like that, um, is it a cordyceps fungus? Or- yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like cordyceps, the fun- but they've recently found with like cordyceps, they actually, so when they're in this, inside the body of the host, the, uh, the fungal hyphae of the fungus, of the parasitic fungus, almost fun- function, function like muscle. So they control the movements of the host to make it do what, what it wants it to do. In this case, it's to uh, distribute, to disseminate the spores of the fungus. And so it will make the ant or the, the cricket or the grasshopper core to a high place for example so when the fruit in body the, the cordyceps fungi emerges it can the, the spores can be blown away in the breeze um but if, if anyone who's ever looked at any of these parasites in detail they found that near well nearly all the ones that have been looked at control their host in some way or another either like with so there's a whole there's a whole bunch of animals called uh horsehair worms gordian worms and they they make their hosts so they they're all always parasites of of insects, and they'll make the the, the host whether it's something like a, maybe a grasshopper or a cricket or a praying mantis, they'll make it go and seek out water and jump into water because that's the only place where the adult parasites that will emerge from its body that's the only place where they can reproduce in water, so they they control its behaviour to make it seek out water. Often that means that the host will die yeah so they make it commit suicide effectively um but there's tons of examples of it yeah and any parasite that's been studied normally 
the parasite is controlling the behavior in some way because it got, it got, you know, when you think about it, it's pretty logical because the parasite, say if it's a parasite with um, different, it needs different hosts, say if it needs two or three hosts, it's going to evolve over time to make sure it maximizes the chances of getting from one host to the next. And if that means controlling the behavior of the host to do that, then yeah, so be it. But they also reckon things like, you know, toxoplasmosis in humans controls human behavior. What's that? So it's a tiny, um, it's a tiny single cell parasite that we catch from undercooked meat. Um, so toxoplasmosis in humans is supposed to be linked to things like risky behavior and promiscuity where it's going to increase the chances of it being spread because we like to think you know that, you know we're humans we're immune we're, we're immune to these things but you know we're we're you know we're just a part of nature so you know we can be affected in the same ways you know and that's something as simple as like you know the flu or a cold you know what what the cold does to you makes you sneeze that is all about maximizing chances of getting transmit transmitted to another host you know, so there's uh, it's everywhere. It's it's it, and it's hugely important. And um, you look at the biomass of like parasites in any uh, in any ecosystem that's being studied. And it's huge, like way more than all the other all the other species in the given ecosystem. Uh, but that's so easily overlooked because they're so small, or they live as adults. They live within you know within the the body of a host, and so they're very easy to overlook. But they're they're crucially important to regulating the populations of other things. So obviously finding these tiny animals and, and small parasites requires a really delicate instruments and good technology. So I just wonder if improvements in technology have changed uh, taxonomy and, and category and what that's going to look like in the future. Yeah, massively. I mean, in the, in the last few years, especially, I think, you know, I think we're living in a new golden age of discovery, really, because, you know, these new technologies are, able, are enabling us to look at, you know, nature in completely new ways what was say 15 20 years ago was impossible now you can do within a few minutes you know a secret sequence in a whole genome you know up until fairly recently that was no that was really really difficult and really really expensive but that was quite commonplace and being able to like take you know sequencing dna sequencing machines that are tiny like you know this big a couple of inches long um and also devices you can connect straight to the phone to sequence dna you know, that, you know, that even like 10, 10, 15 years ago would have been, you know, science fiction. Uh, but it's all moving so fast. Um, and the ability to, um, you know, imaging technology, you know, micro CT scanners, um, you know, so not, uh, not only are we able to like, you know, sequence DNA really quickly and really effectively and really accurately, but we can also look inside these tiny things um, and get a better idea of their inner workings that you know back in the day all of the, all of this stuff was impossible and, and you know that was just in the realms of science fiction really uh and so now we can we can do so much more so much more quickly um and so in terms of like being able to try and figure out uh say trying to figure out how what species are out there and how they're related you know that is becoming you can do so much more than you could do like even you know five or ten years ago um uh but then you know, we have to remember that you know, this, this technology is one thing, but then it also, you know, requires the good old um, skills of, of the naturalist to, to go out there and find those things. You know, so that once you've found the stuff, fair enough, but then you can use these technologies on them. Um, 
but then you still need to go out there and be able to actually do the looking and do the observing. Uh, and those are skills that are often often forgotten, to be honest, and are skills that, uh, well, are definitely not taught at universities, you know, in terms of being able to just, to be a good naturalist, to be, to be out there and know where and how to look for things. Uh, and that's often something you sort of, you know, you, you teach yourself just from, um, it's just from experience, really. So is that more like like foraging like foraging skills? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, like knowing yeah knowing where and how to look for things. Yeah, yeah, and having having a feel for something. So if I go out and I see, you know, I'll be looking at you know bits of habitat. You get a, because you've seen so much, you get a feel for which bits are going to be the most interesting. You know, just from you know just from a quick look. Um. And that's something you only get from experience, really. Um, and again, yeah, it's just it's just from time and sort of like time and patience spent out and about looking for stuff. And I think for me, that that's you know that that's the fun of it, you know, whether it it's here or you know when when I've been to the tropics looking for things, you know, just being able to go out to these places by yourself and you know spend a few hours or a few days, you know, looking for things. It's uh, it's it's an incredible experience and. Probably when I'm at my most happy, to be honest, <laughs> you know, because you don't have any other, you don't, you don't have any other concerns. It's just about out there looking for things that fascinate you. Brilliant. So, building on this idea of improvements in technology, um, at, in your talk at the Linnaean Society, you briefly mentioned how fairy wasps were being researched for use in artificial intelligence. Would you mind elaborating on this a little bit? So when people say wasps, you know, people just think of the things that, you know, come and piss you off when you're having a picnic, you know, uh, or like come and fly around your beer or cider. You know, those are social wasps. But what the wasps are an enormous group of, of insects, probably probably bigger than, probably more diverse than the beetles, I'd say, because there are just so many of these tiny species that are all parasitoids. So parasitoids are... Unlike parasites, that's something that they kill their host rather than sort of living on it or in it for a little time. They kill. so effectively that that miniature predators really. Um, but some of these things are tiny. You know, that's some of the the smallest animals. You know, the the smallest um, the record holder is a tiny wasp from Costa Rica that's 0.14 millimeters long. So that's much smaller than some single celled organisms. But this is an animal that's, you know, this is an animal that's composed of you know several thousand cells you know a few tens of thousand cells maybe and it's got a brain it's got all the organ systems effectively that you and i have so it's got a nervous system it's got a gut it's got um excretory system it's got a way to get you know oxygen in and in, in into its body and carbon dioxide out it's got all of this stuff but in a tiny tiny space so how is this miniaturization possible and so with some of them, you know, um, the, that, the smallest one, um, the smallest ones are males of a particular species that don't have wings, but then ones that are only slightly bigger that are fully winged. You know, these things have to be able to fly and navigate uh, and find their hosts. You know, these are all like really complex behaviours made possible with a brain that is, you know, imagine how big the whole insect is, you know, less, much less than a millimetre long. And in its head, there's a, a functioning brain that controls all this stuff. Now, how does that work? How does such a small brain work? A brain that maybe only contains, 
3,000, maybe 4,000 cells compared to like a honeybee. A honeybee brain has got maybe 850,000 cells in it, a honeybee brain. So you've got something that, you know, is an order of magnitude smaller in this tiny, tiny space, but is able to control all these really complex behaviours. Uh, and figuring out how it does that um, is giving people new ideas for, for things like artificial intelligence and tiny autonomous drones and all sorts of crazy things, how complex things can be controlled with a control system that's so tiny and appears to be relatively simple in terms of how many cells make up the brain. Yeah. So if you could, if you get a good idea of exactly how a brain of one of these things works, you know, it opens up all sorts of possibilities. On a slight uh, tangent, I read recently in a book about a guy called Edward O. Wilson and his studies into arthropods. And he was talking about these colonial, like colonial insects, I think primarily ants, and how they uh, used to live as solitary animals and then sort of became, you know, grouped up into colonies. So I just wondered what you thought about that, or if you, if that's something that's that's true. Yeah, I mean, whether all, all of these like social insects, you know, whether it's like social wasps or social bees or you know termites, that would have all started off originally as you know as solitary animals that uh over time and sometimes happenstance they they started living together in colonies um so within so within the bees and wasps it's it's dictated because of the weird way in which um a female wasp reproduces so a female wasp or a bee so when she when she's going to have offspring she can choose whether she wants to produce a male or a female so the male is produced by an unfertilized egg. So she doesn't need any sperm from the male that she's mated with to produce a male. So that male that she has will not have a father, but it does have, it will have, I have to remember this, but it will have grandchildren. Is that right? Yeah. No, no. Yeah, we'll have, you'll have to figure this out yourself, yeah? So... So the male has no has no genes from from a father. Oh, it's got it's got a grandparent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then so so uh, on the flip side of that is she can a female a, a female is produced by fertilizing an egg. So she can choose whether she wants to produce male or female offspring. And the flip side of that is that the females that she has, the females that are produced by any given queen insect, um, queen bee or queen wasp. The flip side of that is that the um, the females in the colony are all more closely related to each other than any of them is to their mother because of the, of, of, of the, of the weird division of genes. And so it means that there's more in it for them to protect the whole colony and their sisters than there is for any of them to go and strike out alone and try and uh, produce a colony of their own and lay their own eggs. So they could each potentially be the queen bee yeah exactly yeah so i mean you know I, yeah exactly yeah they've, they've got the potential but then because they're more closely related to each other they're sisters in the colony because all the workers in the colony are all females or all, all sisters yeah um and they're all more closely related so they're 0.75 related to each each other than they are to any any others in the colony whether it's their mother or their offspring yeah 
Um, so it's a really it's a really weird situation that has sort of driven the evolution of these like really big complex colonies um, that function a bit like you know sort of superorganisms. Um, but it used to be believed that you know these colonies you know were controlled by the you know, pheromones and other things produced by the the queen. And there is an element of that, but it seems now that each 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 individual in the colony responds to what it interacts with directly in terms of the other individuals. And so no particular individual in that colony knows what's going on in total, yeah? It's just what you have happen is you have all these individuals interacting with each other um, in, in a given ways, and you know, within certain parameters. Um, and that results in what what are known as emergent properties like we have like in our brain you have all the interactions between neurons and our brain that somehow produce a consciousness you know that is an emergent property of all these cells interacting and it's the same i think within the social insect colonies where you have sometimes millions of millions of individuals are doing things that look like they're intelligent but in actual fact, it's an emergent property of all, all these things happening. Um, so it's not something we can. It's a different. It's a. I think it's just a completely different form of intelligence, and not something I think we'll ever be, be able to sort of properly understand. I don't think. There seems to be this shift at the moment where I hear people talking about emergent properties of systems, and I guess it's a complete contrast to how we've thought about science traditionally, and we seem to be learning a massive amount from this different way of looking at the world oh yeah i think you know studying any of these things in detail like, i think will will produce loads of applications that we've got no um no concept of what they might be yet um because there's some some of some of these things are just so complicated and and on, on superficially you know it looks as though they might not really tell us anything but if you look at dig a little bit deeper and then you apply them to problems that we face uh the problems that humans face you know they can they can teach us all sorts of new things, but it, it only come it only comes from getting a good understanding of how these things work. You know whether it's interactions between like interactions between individuals of a given species, or interactions you know between lots of different species in an ecosystem. Um, I think this you know these things are just so so complicated. So trying to sort of like drill down into some of the granular detail, I think will um, will give us all sorts of exciting possibilities for the future is there anything that's uh, that you're releasing soon uh yeah i've got a new uh, i've got a new book coming out soon about um it's it's about insect lifestyle so it's about how insects live and um yeah just the crazy and remarkable ways in which they live you know because people tend to assume again like we were saying earlier that you know you've got these small animals that people tend to forget they've got really complex lives you know it's not just a little like tiny thing that's like um, on your window pane, you know, these things are all doing stuff. And some of it is, you know, really, really bizarre. Um, so yeah, it's just trying to shine a light on some of that really. Um, and then what I was trying to do, oh, I mean, all, all my travel at the moment has all been, has all been canceled. So there's no, there's no travels anywhere that might happen. Maybe might, maybe the end of this year, but we'll see what happens with the virus, but it'd be next year now, I'd imagine. Are you jumping out into the nearest field with your genome sequencer attached to your phone, looking for new species on your doorstep? Oh no, I, I, I don't use any of the the secret the sequencing stuff. I mean, um, I I just use uh, a Puta, which is this thing here. 
just this thing to suck up insects. That's the single that's the single most important tool of an entomologist. Wow. <laughs> I like how bug like it looks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's good. I've um yeah, I, I always I always take this when I go anywhere looking for stuff. It's really important. And a net, obviously, net's really important. Um, but yeah, you don't need any like sort of like special gear for the stuff that I do, really. Just need some uh, a puto and a net. <laughs> An insect repellent. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for speaking to us. It's all right. My pleasure.